13 in your Bibles this morning, if you would please, Luke chapter 13. Um, we'll be looking at another one of Jesus' parables this morning, <clears throat> Luke chapter 13. In Washington, D.C. metro station, on a cold January morning in 2007, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces for about an hour. During the, that, that time period, approximately 2,000 people went through the station, most of them on their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed there was a musician playing. He slowed uh, his pace and stopped for a few seconds before hurrying to meet his schedule. At the four-minute mark, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw money in the hat uh, without stopping. At the six-minute mark, a young man leaned against the wall and listened to him, then looked at his watch and started walking away again. At the 10-minute mark, a three-year-old boy stopped, but his mother tugged, tugged him along hurriedly. The boy stopped to look at the violinist again, but the mother pushed hard as the child continued walk, walking, uh, turning his head all the, the, the entire time. This, this action was repeated by several other children. Every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. At the 45-minute mark, the musician played... Uh, continuously, only six people stopped to listen for a short while. About 20 gave money, but continued walking at their normal pace. The men collected a total of $32. At the one-hour mark, he finished playing, and silence took over. No one noticed. No one applauded nor was there any recognition. No one knew that the violinist that had been playing was Joshua Bell, one of the most <clears throat> greatest, one of the greatest musicians in the world. He had uh, he played one of the most complex pieces ever written with a violin worth $3.5 million. Two days before the Metro Station performance, Joshua Bell sold out a theater in Boston where each seat averaged $100. This is a true story. Joshua Bell uh, played incognito at the Metro Station was organized by the Washington Post as part of a social experiment about perception, taste, and people's priorities. The author of the article raised three very important questions. In a commonplace environment, at an inappropriate hour, do people perceive beauty? The second question, do we stop to appreciate it? And the third question, do we recognize talent 
in unexpected context? Three very important questions. One of the things that many of us are guilty of is being too busy. And in this context here, we see the idea of perception. Perception is a funny thing. The parable that we are about to look at this morning has to deal with perception. What we, what we see and what we think about what we see. We think of perception. We usually come to this idea that uh, you, you know, when, when, at least when I, when I think of the word perception, I think of a, a saying that we are all familiar with, and we've all heard it, and we've all said it, and that is, the grass is always greener where? On the other side. Now, most of us that are older have learned that that is not always true, correct? Okay, what, what is it's perception. You know, it's funny because in my neighborhood, my wife and I work very diligently to keep our grass as green as possible in the front yard. Well, in the backyard too, but, you know, <coughs> but we work really hard to, to, to keep green grass growing in the front yard. And, you know, but, but what's funny is the people right across the street from us do the same thing. And the people next to us to the right have grass. And those of us that live in northern Nevada know that that's somewhat of an oddity to have three houses right together that have grass. And you people from Oregon just stop smiling. Okay. Yeah, you too. <clears throat> um, but, you know, last year I was talking to my neighbor who has, they water like all the time. I mean, their, their sprinklers are always running. And their grass is so green and lush. And then I come and look at my grass and think, wow, that's sad. But it's green, okay? But it's not as green as theirs. And we were talking, we were talking last year, about this time last year, and my neighbor, who has really, really, really green grass, was telling me how jealous her and her husband are of our green grass. And it's, our grass is not as green as their grass. And I'm like, what? But it's perception, is it not? You know, what, what happens? You drive by somebody that has a grass in their front yard and you see this green grass and it's like, wow, that looks really good. But the reality is if you get up and you stop and get out of your car and walk over to it, what do you see? You see a lot of dead spots in it normally. And it's not so green. It's perception. And so the, we're going to be talking about this idea of perception this morning. Just as <coughs> the violinist in the, the D.C. Metro, people just perceived him as being probably a homeless guy trying to make a few bucks. But in reality, what was he? He was a, probably the, one of the best violinists alive at the time our perceptions. See, we filter everything in our lives 
through what we see, what we hear, and how we feel. And those, those things can oftentimes be misleading, can they not? Jay Baxter, I have no idea who this guy is, but I like what he said. He said this, um, what is the difference between an obstacle and an opportunity? Great question. This was his conclusion, our attitude toward it. He went on to say, every opportunity has a difficulty and every difficulty has an opportunity. It's all about perception. Many of the parables that we have been looking at this year are in multiple um, gospel, you know, uh, but the, the one this morning is only found in the book of Luke. Why that is, I don't know, but it is in Luke chapter 13. Let's start reading in verse 6. And he spake this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted uh, in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I came, I, I, I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, thy, uh, why cumbereth the ground? And he answered and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year uh, also, till, uh, till I shall dig it and dung it, and after, uh, excuse me, and if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this very precious, very, very precious parable that you've given us. And Lord, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us as we look at this parable and and uh, kind of peel it apart and see what you have for us here this morning. We ask that you would just do a great work on our hearts and our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the, the, the title of my message this morning is The Parable of the Unfruitful Fig Tree. Uh, kind of an obvious title uh, this morning, but um, there are many, actually many things we can learn from this parable this morning. Uh, and I, I, I trust it'll be a blessing to you. Uh, uh, there were some things here that, uh, uh, quite honestly, as I studied and prepared for this message, uh, God, God used in my life uh, some things that I had not re- seen before, um, but uh, some very precious truths this morning that I hope will be a blessing to you. Uh, point number one this morning is the backstory. In order to understand the parable, we, we need to understand the backstory. Why, why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 13. <clears throat> there were present at, the, uh, at that season some that told him <clears throat> of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So, Again, understanding why Jesus tells this parable, because um, you know Jesus has the advantage that we don't have, and that is Jesus knows the hearts 
of the people that he's talking with. Okay, we we don't have that advantage, but he does. Okay, so but understanding what this is talking about, and we can uh, through study and reading history, uh, historians like uh, Josephus and some others, um, we can pretty much almost guarantee we know what had happened to uh, describe the the events uh, in chapter uh, chapter 13 and verse 1. Every every theologian I read in my studies agreed that this was the event, so uh, I'm fairly confident that this is what happened. Um, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of the region at the time, and he and the Jews did not get along, uh, mainly uh, because Pontius Pilate did not respect the Jewish traditions and 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 um, religious activities and so on and so forth. So there was a, a big disconnect between the government and the religious crowd here. Uh, but the atrocities that take place here in chapter 13 and verse 1 um, probably took place when Pilate appropriated um, some money from the uh, treasury of the temple. Uh, basically, he went to the temple and he robbed the temple, which upset a lot of Jews. And it started a, a not a riot, but a very large gathering of the Jews came and they started, you know, it was, it was almost a riot from, from the study that I came up with. Um, and what Pontius Pilate did was that he uh, instructed several of his soldiers to dress in civilian clothing and hide their weapons, and then they, would, they went and they intermingled with the crowd, and then as it started, the, 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 the crowd started getting aggravated and heated up, the soldiers started killing people. And by doing that, it subdued the crowd, it broke the crowd up, <clears throat> but they killed several people just in, in, indiscriminately. It caused a greater rift between the religious crowd and Pontius Pilate. But it raises the question in, in, in chapter 13, verse 1, why did these individuals tell Jesus this information? You know, they, it, it, I came up with three, three thoughts or three conclusions why they would do this. The first one is maybe they just felt like Jesus needed this information. Um, and they, it, was just, it was just for information's sake, just a matter of news. It could be that they were trying to get a reaction out of Jesus, uh, get him worked up and, and see, see how he would react. But personally, I think what the reason that the, the people in, in verse 1, why they came to Jesus and told him this, <clears throat> comes down to this. What kind of leader were the people looking for? Uh, they were looking for a political leader. And they were looking for someone who would 
who would lead them out of the, the grip of the Roman government. And what better incident to get the people fired up or the quote-unquote leadership fired up to rebel against the Roman government than to have a bunch of Roman soldiers assassinate a bunch of innocent civilians. And I personally believe that that was their motivation because they were looking for that political leader who would lead them to freedom from the Roman government. And I believe that they thought that Jesus might have been that political leader, so that's why they were giving him this information to see how he would react. Point number two this morning. So that's the backstory. What, what most theologians believe the incident in verse one, but in point point number two is the misperception. The misperception. There is a, there is something that Jesus says here. Well, let let's read it. Um, <clears throat> uh, there were present uh, at this season some that came uh, that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. And Jesus answered and said uh, unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish or those 18 upon whom the tower uh, uh, in Salaam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem. I tell you, nay, it, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus obviously knew what the people were thinking. Okay, he knew when the, when the, when the, this group of people came to him and gave him this news, they used a very or well Jesus uses a very important word here, <clears throat> and that that is in verse two, and Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans. In other words. What he say? What, what Jesus is saying is this: is very, very simple. The word "suppose" literally means to have an idea of something but not be sure of it. Okay, that's what the word "suppose" means. So Jesus says to them, "You, you think that the people that were killed, the what, what, what was it, eighteen? The eighteen people killed were worse sinners than all the rest, because that's that's what he says." And, and so what, what, what Jesus is doing, he's giving us a look into the hearts of the people that Jesus is communicating with there. He says, you suppose that these 18 that were killed were killed because they were really, really bad sinners. Now, I want you to follow the logic here. Because this is really important. These people were confused about the love of God. Their perception of the love of God was bad. 
Because what were they saying? They, they were saying <clears throat> that only bad things happen to really bad people. Let me illustrate it to you this way. When I was, when I was first saved, I was in the Navy and I was living with a couple guys off the ship. And, and um, this one day, <clears throat> I don't know, I've been saved maybe, maybe a month or two at the most. And I woke up one morning and I had a cold. And my roommate, who was a, who was a believer... As soon as I walked out into the kitchen area, and he and he first first when he first heard me talking, <clears throat> he's like he's like you've got sin in your life, and, and you know I've only been saved for you know a month or two at the most, <clears throat> and I'm and I'm like well, what are you talking about? He said you're sick. That means God's punishing you because you have sin in your life. And I you know I, I was just dumb enough to believe him. You know, I didn't realize, you know, at that point, again, I was only been saved for a very short period of time. <clears throat> but I believe him. So I went to my bedroom. I left the kitchen, went to my bedroom, and I started confessing, trying to figure out what I had done to make God mad at me. But I'll tell you, I have, I can't tell you countless times People have come to me and they say, Pastor, why does God hate me? Why does does God punish me so much? And and, and we, we, we hear these words and we think, no, God doesn't do that. But I'll be honest with you, I, I, I can almost guarantee there's very few people in this room this morning that have not thought that at one time or another. Why? Because we have a misperception of the love of God in our lives. And and Jesus is talking to this group of people that brings this news, and he says, "You, you didn't say it, but I know what you're thinking, and your thinking is wrong because you suppose that the people that were killed, the 18 people that were assassinated, were the worst 18 people at this gathering. Because that's what they were thinking. It is the same mistake that Job's friends made when talking with Job. They perceived that God was punishing Job for some unknown sin. And they spent days upon days upon days trying to get Job to confess a a sin that he had done that would make God so mad that he would cause all this to happen to him. In Job chapter 42 and verse 7 it says, And it it was, was so that after the Lord had spoken, these words unto Job, the Lord said unto uh, Eliphaz, the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the things 
the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. That's telling. God, God just straight up tells Eliphaz, you know, hey, you and your two friends got it wrong. And a few verses later in Job chapter 42 and verse 10, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now, now I'll tell you what, Job is a great guy. After all he went through, he still prayed for his friends. That's an amazing guy. I don't know I could do that. Just, just be honest. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, it's all about perception. These people had believed that these 18 people that were killed by Pontius Pilate's soldiers were, were wicked people that had hidden sin and, and that they were really, really bad. Look, look at verse 4. It says, Or these 18 upon whom the tower of uh, Shalom fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? Out of all the men in Jerusalem, that these 18 were the worst of all of the people in Jerusalem? That's what Jesus is confronting them with this, this question. Do you really think that those 18 were the worst people in, in all of Jerusalem? Unfortunately, oftentimes we do the same thing. Let, let, let me ask you a question. Which is worse in the eyes of God? Not, not in your eyes, but in the eyes of God. Which is worse, a murderer or a liar? They're exactly the same in the eyes of God. God does not classify sin. He just calls sin, sin. We tend to classify sin <clears throat> because of our, I, I personally believe, we classify sin because of the way our civil laws are structured. Because we say that lying is worse, or, or excuse me, that murder is worse than lying. You go, you can, you can lose your life for lying. You can go to prison for life for or. I said that wrong. Anyway, you know what I mean. <clears throat> think as I think, not as I say. Uh, and then we, and that what we tell our kids. Um, yeah, do as I say, not as, yeah, as I do, right? But anyway, you know what I mean. <clears throat> we are the ones that categorize sin, if you would. God doesn't. If the worst thing that you could do in life is tell a little white lie, if you could make it all the way through life and that's the worst thing you ever do, you're still a sinner. Jesus makes a statement in verse 5 that brings this misconception into a logical conclusion. It says, I tell you, Nay. In other words, what you're thinking is wrong. But then he says this, But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. 
let me let me put it to you in 21st century vernacular. If God punishes people the way you are thinking, then all of us are in big trouble. If you think that God punishes people like that, then you need to get right with God, is what he's saying. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. Every one of us comes short of the glory of God. Even the best of us come short. I love this truth. I love this truth. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Someday when we stand before Jesus Christ, there will be no social class, there'll be no political class, there'll be no no color distinction. We will all stand equal before our Heavenly Father. Praise God for that. There is nothing that separates us from the love of God. I love that song that they sang earlier. We are all equal in the eyes of God. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted in him. So we've, we've talked about the backstory. We've talked about the misperception. So now, uh, point number three, I want to talk about the purposes, the purposes, plural, purposes of the parable. There are many things that we can learn from this parable. And, and, and it's a simple parable, and then on the surface you might be thinking, okay, I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't see what Jesus is teaching here. But let me, let me share with you uh, uh, some of the Per, uh, the purposes that I found uh, in this parable. One, one of them, well, actually all of them are, are precious, but one of them is just incredibly precious. The first one is, the first reason I believe that Jesus tells this parable is to reinforce what he said in verse 5, that we all need to repent. Okay, so it, it reinforces what Jesus said in verse 5. So we talked about that already, so I'm not going to spend any more time on that, but that I believe that's one of the purposes for it. Another purpose is to remind us of the grace and the mercy of God. The grace and the mercy of God. When a, when, in, in this day, when, when Jesus was alive, when a person planted a fruit tree, the, the, the practice was that they would leave that tree alone for three years. They wouldn't, they wouldn't touch it. They, anything that grew on it, I'm assuming they would let the birds have it or whatever, but they, wouldn't, they would not touch the tree for three years. The fourth year, everything it produced was given to God. 
Okay? The, the, the owner of the vineyard said that he waited, he came three years and there was no fruit. So in reality, what is he, how long has he waited? He's waited seven years. And there's no fruit. And this is a picture that God gives us. See, see, we, we unless you did some studying and, and research on it, we wouldn't think about the fact that this, this landowner wouldn't have touched this tree for four years. We, wouldn't, we don't think like that. But the, the audience in which Jesus is talking to knew exactly what, he was, what, what Jesus was talking about. Seven years. Seven years this landowner gave this tree time to produce fruit. And it speaks of the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. Out of all of the attributes of God, the fact that he is patient is the one I, I cherish the most. Because if you really know me, you know I'm a hard person to live with. <laughs> and God has to be patient to put up with me. I am so thankful for the patience and the mercy and the grace of God. And this picture of the, of the landowner waiting seven years for fruit, seven years for something to, to happen, but then the person that works for the landowner says, hey, wait a minute, let's, let's give it another year. Let me, let me fertilize it. Let me dig and, and do the work and fertilize it and see, see if I can't get an, uh, some fruit out of it. Get, give me another year. And the landowner says, okay. The patience, the long-sufferingness of God, the mercy and the grace of God. What an incredible truth that Jesus is telling us here. The third purpose or reason I think that Jesus tells the story is to, to help us understand that this tree, this fig tree, had an advantage over other fig trees. Okay, all right, Pastor, where in the world do you get that from? Well, I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> Look at verse 6. And he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted where? In a vineyard. Now, it's common knowledge that anywhere there is a vineyard, the soil has to be better than other places. So this tree was not just planted anywhere. It was planted in the best possible place for it to produce fruit. Now, how can we apply that to our lives? We can apply that in many, many ways. God gives us plenty of advantages to live right and live for him. This is one of them right here. We have an advantage. We, we have so much to be thankful for. 
the soil was better than... Okay, let, let me put it to you this way. My understanding through my research is fig trees were not necessarily trees that people would plant in their yards. They were mostly kind of like wild out there in the, in the just growing, okay? Let me give you an example. Jesus encounters a fig tree in, in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 19. This is a different fig tree, okay? So don't get them confused here. This is a different story. Um, uh, and it says, And when he saw a fig tree in the way, okay, what is in the way? Just kind of out there in the out there in the field. When he sees it in the way, he he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only, uh, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered up, <coughs> withered withered away. So. Again, here's the picture of Jesus just walking through the countryside and he comes across a tree. Now, again, I, I'm not a farmer. I've never owned a fig tree. But my understanding of fig trees is that the, 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 the leaf on the fig tree actually surrounded the fruit. So in order to actually see the fruit, you have to go to the tree and start peeling the leaves back to find the fruit. That's my understanding. So Jesus goes, he sees this tree and he's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get me some, some figs. They go to the tree. There's no fruit. They peel. They start peeling leaves back. There's no fruit, and Jesus curses the tree, and the tree dies. And that's another parable for another time. Okay, um, but for right now, the, the point was that it, it, just, they were just kind of out there. But this fig tree was planted in a vineyard. It had an advantage over every other fig tree, but yet it still produced no fruits. The fourth purpose, and I think this is the most precious of, of, of all of them. The parable that Jesus tells is open-ended. There's no conclusion. Did you notice that? There's no conclusion. The listener or the reader supplies his or her own ending. So as we, as we read this parable this morning, the, the question then becomes, what are you going to do with it? Did the tree bear fruit? Did the special care that the, the, the cultivator wanted to do, did the special care uh, accomplish anything? Did the tree get cut down or was it, was it spared? And the, 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 the logical conclusion that we can draw from this parable is Jesus is telling us, hey, the choice is yours. Are you going to allow growth to take place in your life so that you can become fruitful? Or are you just going to be stagnant and die? That's the choice. Jesus leaves this parable open-ended. Again, the question is not what happened to the tree. The question is what will happen in your life? Will you become a productive Christian or will you become a stagnant Christian? 
interesting conclusion. This parable is a wonderful picture of many attributes of God. His grace, His mercy, His patience, His love for mankind. And I could, actually, I could keep going on and on and on. But Jesus starts the whole thing with misperception. People thinking that God would punish you and kill you because of sin in your life. If anything, God is more patient and kind than any of us could ever imagine. One of the the most hated statements I hear is, I want what I deserve. I hate that statement. The reason why is this, because if I got what I deserved, it would be eternity in hell, because that's what I deserve. And Jesus, because of his love, his mercy, his grace, his patience, he's washed all that away. The choice is ours. The the parable is clear. The parable is open-ended. What are we going to do with it? I want to close really quickly with a thought that as I I was pondering this idea of of being long-suffering and love and patient and and kind and and, and all this, I I kept getting drawn back to the the story of Jonah and the whale. I want to to read you something here. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah arose up to flee to Tarsus in the presence of the, uh, from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he uh, found a ship going to Tarsus. Um, so he paid the fare thereof and went down uh, into it, uh, into it uh, to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Now, we know if you're familiar with the story at all, I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell here. Uh, Jonah runs from God, but God patiently pursues Jonah. Okay? And, and through a series of events, he's thrown overboard. A big whale swallows him. He spends three days, three nights in the belly of a whale. But ultimately, God gets Jonah where Jonah needs to be. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says this, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go unto Nineveh, the, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I, have, that I bid thee. And Jonah uh, arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah excuse me, began to enter into the city a day's journey and cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is the shortest sermon in the world right there. That's it. That's all he said. And he wasn't even in the city yet. He was on the outskirts of the city. 
So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed the fast and put sackcloth and the, and, uh, from the greatest even <clears throat> to the least of them. God saved an entire city, or really a nation. But what happened? Is only because Jonah went. And, and I, I, I tell you this, in, in my eyes, the book, the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah is about the patience of God in two ways. With the people of Nineveh, which were a wicked, wicked people. But God had patience with them. And, he, they, and God sent a preacher. And he preached a really short sermon and everybody got saved. It's an incredible story. But what is really impressive on me about the book of Jonah is not the patience God had with the people of Nineveh, but the patience he had with Jonah. Because it would have been really easy for God to say, okay, Jonah, you're out. I'll I'll get me another preacher. But what does he do? He takes Jonah on a journey to teach Jonah some very precious lessons along the way. And if we are honest with God and honest with ourselves, there are times in our lives we go through difficulties and instead of saying, God, why are you punishing me? It is a matter of perception. And we need to start looking at it and say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Because it's those things that will radically change not only your life, but the lives of those around you. What an incredible, incredible parable for us this morning. The choice is yours. You get to write the end of the story. Isn't that awesome? Praise God for his love, his mercy, his grace, his his patience. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this incredible parable. Thank you for your love and for the work you do in our lives. And Lord, I am so thankful and grateful for your goodness and your, your grace and your mercy. But Lord, most of all, And you know, you know I have thanked you many, many, many times for your patience with me because I fail you so often. But you're so patient and you're so kind. Lord, as I contemplate the end of my story, help me, dear God, to do so with humility. Lord, help me to make right choices. So very thankful for your love and for your kindness. For it's in Christ's name we pray.